Family Sunday, so all grades one through five who normally would go downstairs will stay up here for with us today. Um, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn to the book of James. We're in James chapter four. Today, we are resuming a series that we started back in the fall of 2019. Uh, We were preaching through James chapters 1, 2, and 3, then we got to December, and we did kind of a Christmas series, and then as we've come into January, we've preached uh, a couple weeks ago on racial reconciliation, just because of Martin Luther King Day, and showing what God's Word has to say um, about that. Last week, we looked at sanctity of life, and just God's view of life that we have from the Word, and so now we are resuming James. So I'm super excited I love when we're making our way through just books of the Bible, and so we're going to be finishing out James chapters 4 and 5 over the next few weeks, and if you remember, James is a command-packed book. There's like 50 50 plus commands and the the little over 100 verses that are here, and James is pressing in what it looks like to live out the Christian faith, and there's at least two truths that we've seen just as we've been going through James. Number one, real faith is visible faith faith. Our faith cannot be contained into just thoughts and feelings. Our faith in Christ transforms our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, and our actions. This is, um, this is why on Tuesday night, if you were here, we did a whole faith and politics night, and, and one of the things we said is, it is impossible to separate our faith from politics. And so if you want to listen more about that, uh, that hour and a half talk that we did um, is on our uh, resource website, on our, our website, on the resource tab. You can pull it down from there on the podcast. Um, but what we've seen through James is that because of our faith, because of the grace of God, he has made us into new creations that that, that affects everything that we do. And it's because of this truth that the book of James often makes us uncomfortable. If you've been in James, if you've been with us, or if you've read it before, a lot of people, as we go through it, we get uncomfortable because James is pressing in on the areas um, that we often do not bring our faith into or that we begin to slip on as Christians. The second truth is, is when our faith is visible, the kingdom of God is visible. Uh, what we've seen is that as Christians... We've been saved that we would be a light in this world, that we would show this world what it looks like to not only live under, but to enjoy the very rule of God. And so as we're making our way through the book of James, James is saying, this is what it looks like to be a citizen of God's kingdom. This is what it looks like to be saved and to enjoy the rule of God. So in chapter one, we saw that the kingdom of God is revealed in the way that we look at pain and trials and suffering. In chapter 2, we saw that the kingdom of God is revealed in how we have compassion on others and how we help those who are needy. In chapters 3, we saw how the kingdom of God is revealed in the way that we speak, how we use our tongue. Today, we're going to see how the kingdom of God is revealed in the way we love one another, the way we treat one another. And so, I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand, uh, and we're going to read chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Here at Timberline, we stand at the reading of God's Word. We do so as a, as a reminder to us that this Word comes to us inspired by the Spirit for the purpose of, of equipping us and training us in righteousness. So chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. 
You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let me pray, and we'll continue. Father, we, we thank you for your word you've given us for the purpose of showing us how to live, of helping us understand your will, of helping us understand what it is to please you, how to live a holy life. And Lord, I pray that as we look at your word today, and it touches on conflict, it touches on the sin within our heart, it touches on something that we deal with on a constant day-to-day basis. I pray for your spirit Lord, that you would give grace as we hear your word. I pray that you would, you would change our hearts, that you would convict us of sin, but that, God, you would show us the grace that you give us. Lord, may we be overwhelmed with the grace that you give on a continual basis for the purpose of us living for you. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. Well, may have a seat. Uh, so we're going to make our way through. One of the things we do here at Timberline is we call it expositional preaching, uh, where we make our way through books of the Bible, and we go verse by verse. And and the benefit of that is it it prevents us from ignoring certain passages, or staying only on certain passages, or preaching just hobby horses. Uh, But we want to go through all of God's Word and see what it is that God has for us that we would live in accordance to His will. And so let's make our way through James chapter 4. We start with a problem This is the first point. Every Christian experiences a battle of desires within the heart. This is where we start. Our text begins with James addressing fighting that's taking place within the church. If you notice in verses 1 and 2, we have the word fight and quarrel at the beginning and at the end of those verses. In fact, James uses the word murder. Now, most likely no one's killing each other. Otherwise, this would become a a legal thing very quickly. But if you remember, one of the things we said in the past when we were in chapters 1, 2, and 3, James, the brother of Jesus, pulls heavily from the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is chapters 5, 6, and 7 from the book of Matthew. That's one of the largest teachings that that we have of Jesus that's put together. And so James is pulling from that and fleshing it out. And one of the things that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 is that uh, to have anger, to have hatred against someone... It's to murder them. He was showing the deeper meaning of what murder is. It's not just the outward action, but it starts with an inward sin. And so that is how James is using it here. The fighting that is taking place is an anger, and it's as if they're murdering one another. So James is going to help us understand why they're fighting, but not just why they're fighting, but why do any of us fight? Why do we quarrel? 
And so in verse 1, James asks us, what is the cause of your fighting? And he answers it and says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And of course, the word passions is the word for pleasure, and oftentimes when the Bible uses it, it's referring to sinful pleasures. Um, So according to James, why is it that we fight? It's because we have sinful passions, sinful desires within our heart. And then he expounds in verse 2, he says, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So again, why do we fight? It's because of unfulfilled desires. So according to the inspired biblical text that we have, the reason that we fight with one another is because sin within our hearts. It's because we want what we want, how we want it, when we want it, and if we don't get what we want, what we think we deserve, what we believe is right, what do we do? We, we fight. Now, the one question we would have is, what is James addressing here? Why are they fighting? Most likely, it's going back to the beginning of chapter 3. When we were back in chapter 3 uh, a couple months ago, we saw that in the beginning of that chapter that there are many people who are wanting to have teaching positions within the church. It would seem to be a respectable thing. It was a place of authority. And so people within the church are, are vying for those positions, wanting to be elders, wanting to be teachers, wanting to be rulers within the church. And James says, hold on. Not everyone should be a leader. He's up there, and so he he presses back on them. But there's a lot of people who are saying, no, no, I I should be the one who tells people what they should do. I should be the one teaching. I should be the one with authority. I should be this person. I help build the church. I help, you know, make our laundry list of reasons of why. And James is cautioning against that. And in chapter 3, verse 16, we read this. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exists. That's these, these people, that are, they're wanting these positions. They have this selfish ambition. It's not for the good of the church, but it's because of what they want. There will be disorder in every vile practice. Now, here's where we need to be careful. We often have really good desires, um, but because of sin, they get distorted. For example, it's a really good desire to, to desire a, a place of authority or an elder type position or a position of a deacon or, or some type of leadership position within the church. In fact, in, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul commends people who would aspire to be an elder. He says, this is great. We ought to do this. But, um, but it's a wrong thing to think you deserve it, to demand it. And you know that it's sin when you begin to fight with others because you didn't get what you wanted. That's often the the very sure way that we understand there's sin in our hearts. How do we respond when we don't get what we want, what we think we deserve, what what we demand? So here's an example that I've used multiple times. My wife loves this example. I love this example. Um, So that has caused friction in my house. Um, When when we were first married, uh, I would often get upset over a laundry basket. Now, it was was a case of of much turmoil in the house. My wife would do an amazing job on on washing the clothes, and this is before kids, uh, so we didn't have that many clothes, luckily. Uh, Now we have tons of clothes, uh, and they're always dirty. 
uh, but she did an amazing job on, on, on washing, on folding, and then, and, then, and then the basket would be in the room. And, and I would come home, and I have a desire. It's a desire that the clothes would, would go from the basket to the closet, you know, or to a drawer. I would say that's a morally neutral desire. It's not wrong. It's not good. It's not bad. It's just simply a desire, a desire for the clothes to be put up. But guess what happens when that desire would be unmet? It was anything but neutral at that moment. I, I, I'd get mad. I, I would get angry. I would get fierce, especially as it happened more. You know, it was like one time it's first, but it just built in me. Um, I would instantly begin thinking about all the things that I had done throughout the day, making my list, well, I did this, 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 I did this. How cannot the one thing that I desire to be done be accomplished? Because it's only one thing, of course, that I would ask. Uh, you, you laugh like you don't believe me. Um, and, and in reality, I would say I, I was justified in my anger. I, I, I deserved, I deserved in my sin, it was when I walk into the house, the house ought to bend to my will. I mean, think about it, like, that's not super abnormal, right? As, as men, oftentimes, we, we walk in, we've done our work, we come in. Well, is this done? Is this done? Is this done? Is this done? It ought to bend to all the desires and all the things that I would like to have happen. Now, according to James, why was I angry? Was it because of my wife? <laughs> Amen. Let's pray. We'll just call it good. <laughs> Man. I don't know if the recording would have picked that up. Um, no, it was not because of my wife. Uh, <laughs> what, was it because of laundry? No, clothes, clothes don't cause people to sin. I mean, clothes are clothes, right? Um, the reason that I sinned is because I didn't get what I wanted. I had a desire, a morally neutral desire, that the sin within my heart had distorted, became an expectation, it came a demand. I needed this to happen, and if it didn't happen, I was angry. And of course, anger could come out in many ways. Maybe you give the silent treatment. Maybe you come like that volcano, you erupt, and you just let people know exactly what you think at that moment. Now, now think about it. Why do you get angry? Like, why do you get angry? What, what desires do you have? Now, maybe, maybe you have sinful desires, because we have those at times. We're just straight up sinful from the beginning. Or maybe there's certain good desires, neutral desires, maybe we'd even say that you have, that have been twisted by sin, that are now causing anger and frustration. Now, what we often want to do is we want to blame people, we want to blame circumstances. We want to say, well, this person did this, therefore I was justified in responding this way. And we do that many times. But, but think about it. When we go through the Bible, do we ever find the blame going to other people or to circumstances because of personal sin? Never in a justified way. Um, think about the life of Joseph. At the end of the book of Genesis, we have like 13 chapters dedicated to Joseph. We see that he was uh, sold into slavery. Uh, he was accused of a crime he didn't commit. He was forgotten about in jail, left to die. I mean, basically everything that could terrible happened to a person. It happened to Joseph. And, and what does he do? Throughout the book, we see that he continually 
trusts in God. He continually acts in an honorable way. In fact, I think we're dumbfounded at times as we read this and we're looking at his life. Or think about the book of Daniel. Daniel is, is an Israelite. He's, captive, he's taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in the 6th in the sixth century. And, and he's taken in. Uh, and how does, how does Daniel respond to now the oppressive uh, Babylonian rule? Well, he He's respectable. He honors God. He honors those who are around him. It's amazing how he demonstrates his faith. In fact, what's really interesting is when you're in the book of Daniel, you'll see how Daniel, in a place of great turmoil, in a place that if we were to blame circumstances, it seems he would be fully justified in sin. But then when we go back to what was life like in Jerusalem prior to captivity, where they were in the promised land, where they were enjoying, you know, the blessings that God had given them in the sense that they had land, they had rights, they had their own rule. Well, they were acting completely and absolutely immoral at that time. So when all the circumstances around them ought to have led them to greater dependence upon God and trust, we actually see at that time they were acting more immoral. And so circumstances and people don't determine whether we are acting sinful or not. I mean, if, it, if they were the cause, then circumstances and people uh, could be blamed and we would never be at fault. Think about it. Adam and Eve, they were simply victims of the serpent. It wasn't their fault. Um, think about it. Uh, the, Joseph's brothers who sold Joseph into slavery wasn't their fault. They're simply victims of their father's favoritism that he had towards the younger brother which created that anger, and so they were completely justified in the way that we responded. Hear this, your, your anger, your frustration, your quick tongue, the reason that we fight with others is not because of people or circumstances, it's because of sin within our own hearts. That's why we fight. That's why we rage. Uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 45, I have it up here. Uh, Jesus says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. The evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So whatever comes out of your mouth, comes from your heart. And whatever's, so, so we need to say, well, what's in our heart? Well, when we respond and do that which is honoring to God, it's because we have faith and love, but when we do that which is sinful, it's because there's sin within our hearts. We fight because we think the world ought to bend to our rule the quality of our relationships the quality of relationships that you have is often revealed by the presence or absence of sin within your own heart if you look at look at the quality of your relationships look at where there's anger and frustration and tension now other people might be factors in that and that they are frustrated with you but your frustration your anger the rage that happens within you that's that's in your heart and so that's evidence in our relationships but our relationships are not the only thing that reveal if we have sin in our hearts james now says so does our prayer life look at the end of verse two you do not have because you do not ask simply says when we have sinful desires we we stop praying see prayer is an act of humble dependence upon god it's us saying god i need you i need your grace i'm dependent upon you i know that i can't change other people i can't change my own heart i need your grace within me 
And so prayer is, is an amazing act of faith in which we are dependent upon God, which is why we encourage one another to pray, which is why we have prayer meetings here as a church where we're coming together and saying, look, this isn't going to be happening uh, because of great preaching or great leaders or great children's ministry. The way that we're going to grow and have and make disciples is because of God's grace upon our lives. And thus, if we're not praying, then we are thinking that we are strong, that we're entitled, and that we can achieve what we want, how we want, when we want. And so one question we need to be asking ourselves is, am I praying? What am I praying for? Are there things in your life that you are trying to achieve and accomplish in your own purposes or in your own power, in your own might, rather than depending upon God in prayer? Now, of course, we all know when we pray, that doesn't mean we don't do anything. But are we trusting in God or are we trying to accomplish things apart from God? Now, you might be here and you say, I got a great prayer life. Great. Well, we can go on to verse 3 for you. Uh, verse 3, it says, You ask and you do not receive because you, wrong, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. So, because of sinful pleasures or sinful desires in our heart might lead us so we don't pray at all. Or we might pray a whole bunch. And we just keep coming to God and letting him know the laundry list of things that we have for him. And, and we ought to come to God. I mean, Jesus wants us to know that he loves our prayers. He wants to answer our prayers. In John 14, 13, we read this. <clears throat> Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. He wants us to know, come. Come, ask. The Father uh, loves to hear our prayers, desires to give us good things. But what we see here is that we, if we come to him with selfish motives, if we come so that our kingdom is made great rather than God's kingdom is made great, then, then God doesn't answer those prayers. When we pray this way, this is what one author said, we turn God into a divine waiter. He's there to deliver our daydream to us. We touch base with him on a Sunday. <clears throat> We put our order in via prayer. We might give a decent tip in the collection plate, but God is essentially there to give us what we feel we need, and we get furious with him if he doesn't deliver. You ever feel like that? Let me just ask you, are there things that you're praying for that you feel like you're just hitting a deaf ear? One reason it, it might be is that you're coming with, with selfish desires, for the purpose of your kingdom rather than God's kingdom. The purpose of your glory rather than God's glory. So what should a text do like this? It should cause us to pause and ask, what am I praying for? What are my motives? Am I coming to God as if he's obligated to answer me, like, like he's my butler? Or am I coming out of humility and dependence upon him? It forces us to ask this question. Now, if we're not careful, what we often do is when we read the Bible, like on a, a Tuesday morning or whatever, we just read left to right, top to bottom, we get done, we put it up and we walk away, right? But what we need to train ourselves to do is as we read, to ask questions, to pause. And to say, okay, how does this impact what I'm living? What, what is God calling me here? And so as we're reading through this text, and this is why it's so important that we come together on a Sunday morning where we get to do this collectively, and we get to say, okay, where are we praying? How am I praying? Am I praying? Now, someone might say, okay, I get that sometimes I fight with other people, 
And I get that sometimes I have wrong desires when I pray. But come on. That's life, right? Like, isn't this just who we are? Aren't we just kind of, you know, sinful people? We're waiting for Jesus to come back. Is there really anything we can do about it? Is it really that big of a deal? Do I actually need to be upset that, that I do those kind of things? Do I really need to care that there's, certain, that there's just certain people within the church that I don't like? I don't care. Should we be concerned about that? Should we be concerned that, that we feel justified to let people know exactly what we feel at certain times? In whatever way we feel is right at that moment. Or is that just life? Before we move on, let me just give two things there. Number one, let's remember James is talking to believers. Remember Jesus in John chapter 13, after washing the disciples' feet, he said, it's your love for one another, looking at the church, your love for one another that reveals that you're my disciples, that you're followers of Christ, that you're saved. So our love for one another is a very visual testimony of our salvation. So it's kind of a big deal. Secondly, James is not saying actions don't have consequences. James is not saying we don't confront people, but he is very much saying, what is your motive? Is your motive that they would see and hear the love and the grace of the kingdom of God? Or that they would feel the power and rule of your kingdom? They're just pressing us into, what is our motives at those moments? So we go back, is, is, should we be concerned? Or do we just kind of brush this off and say, well, we're just sinful people, this is life. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 is the most harsh rebuke we will come to believers within the entire New Testament. Here James turns to the church, and he says, you adulterous Now, throughout the letter, James uses the word brothers, the endearing term brothers. We're family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're saved by the blood of Jesus. God is our father. Jesus is our elder brother. That is the language that he's using as we're making through the book of James. Now he changes the word that he uses to address. It's no longer brothers because he wants to get a point across. He's been using brothers repeatedly. We're brothers. We're brothers. We're family. We love one another. Hold on. If we act this way, you adulterous people. So he's drawing attention to this word and simply the way he uses it and the way words that he's used elsewhere to refer to the church. So why use the word adulterers? Why that word? Well, in the Old Testament, the prophets would often speak about the relationship between the Father, between God, and Israel within a marriage-type relationship. Like in Isaiah 54, 5, God is called the husband of Israel. And thus, when Israel would begin acting like unbelieving nations, would begin disobeying God, would begin worshiping false idols, the prophets would come and call her an adulterous wife, an unfaithful wife. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20, this is what we read. Surely... As a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. So Israel is called unfaithful as they worship false idols, as they disobey God. Now, James is using that same Old Testament language. Interestingly, the church isn't worshiping false idols at this moment. 
but it's their lack of love for one another that James says you're acting as an unfaithful wife. So to go back, does it matter if we have strife within here? Does it matter? Should we consider it a big deal with rage and anger, frustration, tension in our hearts towards one another? Well, would you think it's a big deal if your spouse was unfaithful to you? That's where James is bringing this. That's what he wants us to see. If your spouse acted as if they were not married, would that concern you? And not only does he say that you're acting as an unfaithful wife, but he says you're actually acting as an enemy of God. Look at verse 4. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We're calling ourselves Christians, but then we live as if we're not. We say we're citizens of God's kingdom, but we act as rebels. We say we trust in God, but then we're like an unfaithful wife. So so before we move on, I just want to pause, because James is doing something here. He's building on something that he's been talking about since the entire beginning of the book. Throughout the book, James has been warning us about being double-minded. So let me just refresh our our memory there. In chapter 1, verse 8, the person who doubts God when he prays is what? Is called double-minded. In chapter 2, verse 4, when we talked about if the church shows favoritism, partiality, we say we love, we say we'll care for the poor, but then we we play favorites with the rich. He accuses them of being double-minded. In chapter 3, verse 10, James talks about if we bless and curse out of the same mouth, there's a double-mindedness about that. It should not be so. And now, as we come into chapter 4, he seems to be bringing everything to a climax and saying, look, if you say that you're a believer, if we say that we're a Christian and that we're family, yeah, we fight with one another, we have strife with one another, we're not willing to have reconciliation, we're not willing to move past, we're not moving, willing to have grace with one another, and he's saying you're being double-minded. You're calling yourself a Christian, but you're not. You're saying you're, a fam- you're part of the family of God, but you're an unfaithful wife. And so he brings it to a climax here in verse 4 and says, you're acting adulterous and as an enemy of God. And I don't think there's anyone here that this doesn't hit. This hits us all, sometimes more or less, but it hits us all in areas of our life. So if we were to pause now at this moment, which I think that's what James is wanting us to do, and we were to ask the question, where am I being double-minded at? Am I being unfaithful to God? Am I acting more like an unbeliever than a believer? Am I acting like a citizen of the world or a citizen of God's kingdom? And how would we know that? Is there someone I'm angry with? Is there someone I'm gossiping or slandering? Has my prayer life become a laundry list of of selfish desires? Do I even pray? Those would be some of the ways just from from chapter 4 that we could begin to know. So James is confronting us with our sin. And he's calling us to deal with it now. He's saying, look, if you don't, if you persist in your anger, you're rejecting God. And so we, we might be here and we say, 
okay, well, I don't want to do that. I don't want to persist in anger. I don't want anger and frustration to consume me. I don't, I don't want to be unfaithful to God. But also, I don't know how to stop. You ever feel like that? Like you're just, you're just in the heat of the battle, and you're like, okay, I see it's not good, but I, I don't know another way out. I have to go forward. You feel so right, so justified. How do I let the anger go? And maybe you know, the fight has gone so long that you go, I don't even know if reconciliation is possible. So what do we do? I think that's where we come into now verse 5 and 6. Where we come to the solution, God's grace is sufficient to overcome our sinful desires. This is what I want us to see here today, is the truth here in these verses. Now, now look at verse 5. Now, verse 5, straight up, most difficult book in the book, most difficult verse in the book of James. Extremely difficult in the Greek to figure out exactly what he is saying and how it should be translated. <clears throat> For example, is the spirit the spirit of God or just our earthly human spirit? Is the word jealousy and envy, that, that word, is it being used positively or negatively? Is the spirit the subject or the object of the sentence? All those things I know we all care about. We just expect the, the Bible to just give it to us perfectly. Um, and it does, for the most part. But there are some texts that are just hard. We, we have a good idea, but there might be a couple possibilities. So I have two possibilities. These are kind of the major possibilities of, of what this text is. Um, here's the NIV. Um, and great arguments can be made for either one. They really can. In fact, I have some of my favorite commentaries on James, and I was like, great, I'll see what this guy says because it'll be a done deal. So he goes for option, you know, A. And then I read my other commentary who will surely, you know, side with this guy, so now I don't have to question anything at all, and he goes with option B, and then I'm like, oh, well, that's, that's not helpful at all. So good cases can be made for both. Uh, the NIV says the spirit he caused to live us envies intensely. If that's the case, then within the flow of the context, we'd be, what he's doing is he's helping us understand why we have this adulterous heart. Because the spirit that I have as a sinful human person continually lusts and envies for that which it does not have. Therefore, as we move to God's, therefore, as we move to verse 6, he goes, but God gives more grace. So God's grace is stronger and able to overcome the sinful uh, lusts of our heart. That would be how option A would read. ESV, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. So if this is the case, this is saying that God is looking at the spirit. Now, it could be the human spirit or the spirit of God that he has placed in us. And it's saying, as his saved people, people that he's been adopted, God is jealous for you as a husband would be for his wife and desires for her to grow in his love. And so he will do all that he can to help his wife. Therefore, God gives more grace. So regardless of which one you uh, would side with, they're both meant to show us how we move to verse 6. God gives more grace. And both of them would be true. That's the thing, is when we come to a, 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 um, forget the word that I've become using here. When we come up with two possibilities like this for a text, if one of them was wrong, we just rule it out. If it was clearly contradicted by other parts of Scripture, both of these could be affirmed in other parts of Scripture. So, 
we're not we're not jeopardizing things if we lean one way or another we're not bringing in false teaching um, but both of them are moving to get us to the goal of verse 6 which verse 6 says god gives more grace that's where he wants to take us the solution to our sinful desires to our adulterous hearts is that god gives more grace the solution to the anger that you have within you God gives more grace. The solution to the lack of prayer life that I have, God gives more grace. The solution to my praying as if God is my personal butler, God gives more grace. The solution to my self-righteous heart that thinks I am right and I deserve the things that I want, God gives more grace. That's where he's taking us. He's taking us in the first four verses to show the sinfulness and the depths of our heart. But he doesn't leave us there. Then takes us right into the very grace of God. He says, but God gives more grace. Do not feel helpless. Do not feel like there is no hope here. And how do we know? How do we know this isn't just what we would call today the art of positive thinking? Don't worry, guys. God gives more grace. Just have good feelings. Because that, that frankly wouldn't help you and it wouldn't help me and that would be pointless if that was the case, right? Well, we have many places that we could go, but let me take us to one, James chapter 8, verse 32. And I have this up on the screen because I want you to be able to see it. Now, this is a verse we need to memorize. This is an amazing verse. This is, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, this verse has the power to set you free from, from anger, from depression, from anxiety, from, from anything we need to understand this verse. So what does it mean God did not spare his own son? We'll take it in two sections here. Well, we know that God sent his son Jesus on a cross, uh, sent his son Jesus to come to earth that he would die on a cross. He comes because we have sinful, self-righteous hearts. We deserve God's wrath. In our sin, we reject God. We want, again, the world to bend to our rule. We want people to do what we want, when we want, how we want. We indulge our sinful passions. And so what does God do? Rather than send everyone to hell in a handbasket, he gives grace. He sends his son Jesus to the cross so we could be forgiven, so we could be saved, so we could have new hearts, so we could be adopted, so we could be made citizens of God's kingdom. We're on the road to hell, but God gives grace. That's the first half of the verse. It's looking at salvation. God gives grace. And then we look at the second half. Now, the second half of the verse is what's amazing here. He's now looking forward from our salvation. He's looking into the future. And he says, as he's looking for the, for, into the future, he says, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So here's the argument. If God sent Jesus to die on a cross so that we'd be forgiven of our sins and that we'd be saved from the very wrath of God, will he not now help us in our everyday life? If he does the great act, the bigger act of saving us from God's wrath, will he not now give us the grace we need to overcome the sins on a day-to-day basis? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. And what he wants us to see is that our Christian life begins with grace and it ends with grace. The whole entire Christian life is full of of grace it's a grace that sets us free from anger from lust from anxiety from depression from porn from sexual morality 
There is not one sin that we wrestle with that God's grace does not come to set us free from. Now, when I say free, it doesn't mean we'll never battle with it, we'll never experience and, and you're wrestling with it. We're no longer slaves to it. Isn't that good news? Think about it. That's, that's the gospel. That's Christianity. God saves us, doesn't leave us, now gives us His Spirit that He would walk with us every day, giving us the grace that we need for whatever situation that we are in. So that's then when James goes, and he now quotes Proverbs 3.34 when he says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So if you want to continue in your sin, he says, if you want to continue thinking that you're right, everyone else is wrong, if you want to keep fighting with people, if you want to keep stoking the anger within you, know that you're going against God. That's what he wants us to know. You're, you're fighting against God, and he will oppose you. But, if you turn from your sin, there's grace. There is grace. If you humble yourself, there is grace. So the question that leads then is will we receive God's grace? Will we trust in the grace of God? And so I, I would ask you if you're here today and you're an unbeliever and, and you're hearing this maybe for the first time, there might be just many, many questions you have. But the question that ultimately would come is do you understand that you're a sinner and that God has wrath? And the only solution to that is trusting in Jesus Christ who came from heaven to the cross to die so that we could be forgiven. That'd be the first thing to do. Now, if you're here and you know that you're a believer, but you're wrestling going, man, I, I do have anger. I do have wrestling. There are areas that I have not been faithful in. Then the question would be, will you trust in Christ today? Will you confess those sins? Will you humble yourself? Will you submit to God? And that's really what brings us into the whole next section. We overcome our sinful desires by submitting to the perfect rule of God. Now, this is what verses 7 through 12 look at, and we're going to look at all that next, or, yeah, verses 7 through 12. We're going to look at all of that next week. So we're going to save that part, but I just want to bring out two parts, or two verses. Verse 7 says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Verse 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord. So there's two sections here. One is verses 7 through 10. The other is verses 11 through 12. The first half begins and ends and it's bracketed with this submission and humility and i would say those words are, are largely synonymous uh, to, to submit is to willingly bow before god as our king and our savior and a provider to humble oneself is to recognize our spiritual poverty and our desperate need for god's help largely synonymous there on, on coming before god and saying look i am not god i need grace i, I need to depend upon you for how I parent, for how I, I do marriage, for how I interact in everyday life, for how I, whatever it is, go through the various things that we do each day. So what James has done is shown us why we fight. We fight because of sinful desires. He said, don't look out there, look in here. Then the next thing he shows, the solution is God gives more grace. That's what we have to know. We know it because of the cross, that not only that is where salvation is found, but then that salvation, that grace continues throughout our entire life. The question is, will we continue to seek him? Will we trust in him? Will we humble ourselves? And next week, we'll flesh that out a lot more. But I want to encourage us as we go into communion today. Communion is a time that we celebrate 
really what God has done for us on the cross is let us examine our hearts and let us examine am I a believer? Have I truly trusted in Christ? Let us examine if you are a believer, have I been living faithful? Are there areas of unfaithfulness? Are there things I need to confess? And I encourage you to do that. And, and I would encourage you, if, if you know that you've been in turmoil with someone, with strife with someone, with, with tension with someone, here within the church, and they're a believer, I, I would get right with that very quickly. For it's our love for one another. Again, remember, it's our love for one another. It testifies to this world that we're believers, that we're followers of Christ. God has given us his gospel that we would know him and that we'd be transformed to live like him because he's glorious. He's perfect in every way. And he's drawing us into that glory. So let's pray as we then take communion. Our Father, we come to you now. And we thank you for this day. Father, I thank you that we have this text, which is a hard text. But, it, Lord, but Lord it, it corrects us from thinking that we need to look outside of ourselves to that we need to look inside of our own hearts for sin. Lord, I pray that, that myself, that no one here in this room, help us not to fall into the temptation of blaming others, to blaming circumstances. But God, may we, may we confess the sin within our hearts. May we trust in the grace that you have given at the cross and that you promise to give each and every day. The fact that you give more grace. And may we know that truth. And may we know that grace is for us every day whether we're fighting anxiety, depression, anger, frustration, lust, whatever it is, you give more grace. We're not victims of sin. We're not slaves of sin. But as believers now, we're children of God. We're set free. Your spirit dwells within us that we are empowered by you. And Lord, I pray that we as a church would grow in our love for one another. That, Lord, that when there is conflict, when there is any tension, that we'd be quick to reconcile. I pray that as First Peter talks about, love covers offenses, that we'd be quick just to let love cover any offense that comes up. Because, Lord, your, the blood that you have shed on the cross, we know has overcome these sins. We know there's forgiveness in you. We know there's reconciliation because of what you have done for us. And so, Lord, I pray now as we go into communion, may we do so as a means of celebrating the life that we now have in you, the forgiveness that we have in you, the hope that we have in you. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen.